Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street. Exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Aschuti, Tulane University Freeman School of Business professor and director of the Birkenrode Reports. It's business New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. When the pandemic came along, it derailed a lot of plans. Businesses had to shut down with no notice. Some have reopened. Some are struggling to reopen. Others have been unable to continue and have gone out of business. My guests on Out to Lunch today are both in a strange gray area. They both have unorthodox businesses. They both have millions of dollars in investments sunk into them, and neither of them quite knows what the future holds. Julia Bland is the CEO of the Louisiana Children's Museum. For 33 years, the museum was on Julia Street in the Warehouse District. In August 2019, the museum opened the doors of its new facility, 56,000 square feet of brand new purpose-built construction in City Park. This impressive looking new museum took over a decade to bring to life with a price tag of over $47 million. On August 17, 2020, Julia had to lay off 40 employees and close the doors of the museum. The Louisiana Children's Museum will reopen at some point, but when and what that will look like is hard to predict right now. Julia Bland, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you today. For almost 20 years, Kenneth Hoffman helped build and run the World War II Museum in New Orleans. In 2017, Kenneth left that position to build a new museum in New Orleans. Today, Kenneth is executive director of the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. It's the only museum in the United States dedicated to the study of the Jewish experience within a specific region, or at least it will be when it opens its doors. The museum had raised $6 million of its projected $10 million budget and was slated to open in a building just off Lee Circle in October 2020. But the pandemic has forced those plans to change. The building is still there, the exhibits are ready, the extensive collection of artifacts is curated, but the anticipated 40,000 visitors a year are nowhere to be seen. And there's not enough confidence in how long it will take to recover to hire a staff required to run a facility of this size. Kenneth Hoffman, welcomed out to lunch. Peter, it's great to be here. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just came back from our punch list walkthrough at our building. So we are very close. <laughs> Good planning. Julia, you've closed the Children's Museum as a part of the total lockdown of all businesses in March. Then, when things opened up, you were able to open at 50% capacity. Now, that was in June, but by August, you were closed again, this time without a future opening date, with most of your day-to-day -day staff gone, simply opening the doors and having everything snap back to how it was just isn't an option. I'm sure you have any number of scenarios and how you might get the museum back open again. Among them are the possibilities of a progressive opening where you could open a piece at a time so the expenses and risks 
would be incremental and manageable, or, or doesn't it work like that? Well, I think for children's museums, there really are several different ways that we deliver our mission. One is to be open as a, a museum, open to the public, which is the, the most common um, and known entity. Another is to look at the collection of resources that we have, and those resources can be shared offsite, they can be shared virtually, they can be shared in a number of ways. And yet another way is to look at, look at ourselves as an innovation lab and think about what we can do differently um, that really plows new ground and looks at the way we deliver our mission in the city of New Orleans or the region of Southeast Louisiana and explores new opportunities. So yes, we do have a number of scenarios planned for our future, um, but we also are, con are continually revisiting the best ways for us to use this time now to our, our benefit, actually to strengthen the museum while we're close to the public, but while we're able to deliver our mission in many new ways. Well, my children have uh, grown, so I haven't been to the new facility uh, yet. I'll have to borrow a kid to, to go over there. But it's uh, the things I loved. Are they still there? I love the big bubble, and I love the uh, <laughs> grocery store, which taught kids how to spend money. Very valuable. It was. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. there, there are a couple things that we couldn't have even thought about without replicating or, or improving upon. Yes, we have a grocery exhibit, but it's a much more expanded exhibit and yes we have a bubble but it's a stand inside a square bubble if you will. Um, we also have a great focus on water management and um, as, a, as a huge challenge to our region we have a hundred foot long water table. The Mississippi River actually is, um, is on the top floor of our new museum. So yes some of our favorite tried and true exhibit experiences but also we've included a real focus on getting kids ready for success by age three, by age five, by age eight, for the, the continuum that they have in the world of formal education and lifelong learning. Kenneth, we've had the Lieutenant Governor here on Out to Lunch. He's the state's point person on tourism, and we've had local tourism officials here as well. From talking to them, I've discovered that they collect a lot of information about the people who come to visit here. But of all the statistics they compile, I don't know that they're categorizing tourists by religion. 40,000 seems like a lot of Jewish tourists in a year. How did you come up with that number? And is there a way to open the Museum of Southern Jewish Experience with fewer than 40,000 visitors a year? Well, first of all, let me say that one of the advantages of working in a museum is that you get invited to other people's museum openings. And when Julia opened the new Louisiana Children's Museum, um, I got an invitation to one of the preview evenings and the place is spectacular and I know it's going to come back stronger than ever and so I can't wait to revisit it when it reopens. So that's kudos to Julia on all of her work and her staff. Now as far as um, Jewish visitors to the city, um, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care uh, how many Jewish visitors come to the city because our museum is not just for Jewish visitors. You don't have to be Jewish to come to the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. You don't have to be Southern to come to the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. We are telling an American story through the lens of a particular community. Um, and we're expanding people's understanding of what it can mean to be a Southerner, and what it can mean to be a Jew, what it can mean to be an outsider who can become an insider, 
And how do you navigate those, that landscape? Um, there are universal lessons uh, in these experiences and uh, we want everyone to come through the museum. Now, the way we got our number and actually the 40,000 is closer to 30,000 is what we're expecting per year. We did a feasibility study with a professional museum outfit um, and they compared like museums to ours around the country. They compared like uh, museums and attractions to ours in New Orleans. Uh, and there are all kinds of charts and graphs that they sent us. And that is what they expect we can expect. Um, and so we've got the travel tourists, we've got the business, um, the convention folks coming in who are always looking for something else to do and see. Uh, and we feel like we're going to get a wide variety of visitors, as well as locals, as well as school groups, um, and, you know, the various cohorts that you would get coming to a museum. And Kenneth, the Jewish experience in the South is, uh, it's, it's fascinating no matter who you are. I mean, the idea that so many of these small Southern towns had a uh, um, small Jewish population, but perhaps they were the, the merchants and the leaders of a town. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that um, many people maybe don't know about, but the South is or has been a primarily agricultural part of the country. Um, Jewish immigrants coming from Europe, oftentimes, this is in the 18th and 19th centuries, early 20th centuries, oftentimes came from places where they had not been allowed to own land, where they had not been allowed to be in the various guilds. So they honed their own merchant skills they came to the South. Here are a bunch of farmers. Here is a, someone who can be a merchant or a peddler. And so there was actually a very nice merging and a, and a symbiosis that worked out quite well. And so where you might think that the South, a place that is very religious, very Christian religious, sometimes uh, fundamentalist, um, that, uh, that Jews would be the uh, eternal outsiders. And yet, what we find is a real connection um, and a real acceptance, not always, but oftentimes an acceptance because these Jews became an important part of the community, first economically and then civically and socially and philanthropically. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Kenneth Hoffman from the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience and Julia Bland from the Louisiana Children's Museum. Now, Julia, I have to ask you, um, well, ask you both, who's in a worse position in that, Julia, you have this beautiful facility that had been open for six months. Uh, that's got to be tough. And then, Kenneth, you're not quite open and you're, and you're not done with your capital campaign uh, similar positions, but not exactly the same. Uh, how would you compare them? Well, I, I feel like we probably have an advantage over, over Kenneth. Um, we were able to have a grand opening. We were able to really take the momentum of, of opening our new facility. And, and while we had mapped out a good 18 month run as sort of our first big, um, um, opportunity to welcome visitors from all over and expect our numbers to peak before they plateaued or declined a little bit, which is the norm in, an, in a new museum opening. Um, we did have the advantage of having a good strong start, not nearly as long as we hoped for, 
but we did have the advantage there. And um, so my hat's off to Kenneth and the work that he is doing when his opening has been delayed and recalibrated um, and, you know, having to think through how you open another wonderful cultural institution at a time that there are added restrictions to the operations. And Kenneth, you were a little bit different position. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll respond, and I'll respond that I think that in a way I have the advantage <laughs> and I feel, I feel, um, um, you know, a great uh, respect for what Julia and, and her leadership have had to go through because they had to lay off so many people. And that, when you're in the museum field, your staff is everything. Your staff is so important. And the relationships that you build with your staff and to have to let them go, it's understandable, but it's a very difficult thing to do. Our staff, when we are fully staffed up, will be, I believe, seven. We are a small museum shop. Right now I have three people. I have not had to let anyone go. And so for that reason, I feel like I personally have had an easier time because I didn't have to make those phone calls and I didn't have to send out those emails and letters that Julia did. So, um, so I guess it just depends on how you look at things as to what's easier on you or not. What about uh, help from other museums? I assume there's an association of museums that uh, all of you could you know, pull from each other. Is, is there such a thing? Well, there are several, I mean, there's, there are local groups um, of, uh, of museum professionals that get together to network. There's Louisiana Association of Museums, which I was once, I was president of that organization um, during the year of Katrina. So that was very um, interesting to have to navigate through those years. And then there are regional and national and even international museum groups. And we all uh, rely on these groups for uh, professional expertise, for um, social, um, you know, social and emotional help, um, and new ideas and collaborations. And I think that's one of the most important things um, to have peers that you network with. We have the Association of Children's Museums, and then the big umbrella of all is the American Alliance of Museums that really reaches out to all types of museums to help give us um, tips and guides and a network. Um, in addition to that, I, I was lucky enough back in March to connect with a group of six other CEOs of children's museums in large cities, Miami, Philadelphia, Boston, Seattle, Portland, and so on. And we meet weekly and we have all gone through the same steps, the same processes, different timelines, different dynamics, but it's been extraordinarily helpful to have a sounding board of peers to be able to say, how can you handle this? How have you handled this? How might you handle this challenge? So it's, you're, you're right, Peter, to, um, to understand the value of a network through an association or through a cohort group that can, where we're all speaking the same language and, and juggling the same challenges. And, and Peter, I'm on the uh, I'm on the board of something called Cajum. It sounds like Cajun, but it's Cajum. It's the it's the Council of American Jewish Museums, and so there are you know 30 to 40 museums across the country. Um, many of them Holocaust museums. Uh, many of them 
actually historical synagogues that open to the public to show their architecture and their history. Um, and so that group in particular, like Julia's Children's Museum Association, is very helpful um, to learning the business, um, learning the culture of, uh, of, uh, of running a Jewish museum. And Julia, you haven't, uh, haven't stopped trying to create new ideas. You actually, have, you actually have a school in there now, right? We do. You know, back in the summer, we were really coming to, to grips with the reality of having to close the doors to the museum and um, to close this wonderful facility. And at the same time, there were so many conversations around what school looks like once school goes back in session, uh, whether it's virtual or it's a hybrid model or an in-person learning model. And about the same time, there was an article in the New York Times about the pandemic 100 years ago and the value of teaching outside. We have acres of our site. We're on an eight and a half acre site in the middle of a 1300 acre park. And so it was a very, um, very clear awakening to us that we could repurpose our building and grounds and use it differently at a time when schools were really struggling with how to do teaching well. So we reached out to a lot of people, superintendent of education, people at the Department of Education, but have ultimately ended up with uh, five pre-K and kindergarten classes that come here every morning at 7.15. They're here all day and will be through December. And they're using the museum's outdoor gardens as different learning environments. They're using our interactive exhibits to help with their different, um, different content areas. They are using everything here. In fact, this morning I saw a group of them walking the labyrinth um, on our South Shore. So it's just extraordinary how well they're using the edible garden or the natural landscapes, the music garden. Their, their middle school music teacher is actually coming and teaching math and rhythm through steel drums that we have out in our music garden. So we're loving having children around and really loving having a different way for the museum's many assets to be, um, to serve as an advantage for children for whom um, this has been a really rocky road. And because uh, uh, it's a business show, I'll ask it in a, in a kind of a different way. I guess you're looking for other sources of revenue other than admissions. Right, right. And I think, you know, normally we have about 11 different revenue streams. And with the pandemic, one by one, they've been challenged and dropped. And this, um, this is not a money-making uh, venture on our part, but it has, we have gotten very generous contribution from the Hellas Foundation to help underwrite many of the costs associated with hosting the school. And so that's been a big plus for us to be able to share the resources that we have, thanks to philanthropy. And, and, and Julia, kudos to you. I've got a middle schooler and a high schooler sitting at home doing the online school. And I wish that you would uh, have middle and high school classes at the Children's Museum so they could get out of the house. <laughs> and Julia, you're doing something very important for a place like Louisiana is that you're getting them very early to uh, understand the importance of you know, water and uh, the ecology here. And I think it's got to make a big difference in future generations. Well, we, we know that this is these are some of the biggest challenges that we have as a city, state, and region. And introducing children to environmental education is critical. So we've got lots of different ways that um, through our green infrastructure and through our sustainability commitments, that this is part of the experience anywhere you go in the museum, inside and out. 
And Kenneth, when you, um, of course, you came to us from the World War II Museum and, you know, you were, I guess, the third employee over there. We say you've been there a long time. But they, your museum and the World War II Museum have something in common. I think the term you used was uh, kind of like an ownership museum. What, what's meant by that? Well, so the World War II, so my time at the D-Day Museum, which became the World War II Museum, was really the majority of my professional museum career so far, 18 years. And so not a day goes by that I don't think about lessons learned while I was there. Uh, it's a very well-run place. Um, and, uh, and I learned so much. Uh, one of the things that I found fascinating working there was on a daily basis, people would, um, uh, they would compliment the place, but then they would also have a, a complaint. And the complaint was generally about where, where was my grandfather? Where did you didn't tell the story of my uncle? He was in the 472nd Chemical Battalion at Anzio, or something like that. Um, and then we would have to explain. Well, if I, you know, thank you for your family's service, um, and but you know we can't. We have a, a limited footprint, and we can only tell so many stories. Uh, but what it showed was that people cared. They were coming to this museum and they felt that it was their story, their family's story or, or their country's story, and they wanted to feel included, uh, which is great um, because some museums you just go to because it's on the tourist trail and you're supposed to go and you go through and, and you enjoy it and then you leave. The World War II Museum is not like that and our museum is not going to be like that either we have people already, when we talk about our exhibits, well, what are you going to have in there? Well, can you put something about my family in there? Because, and then they start telling us about their family and where they came from and all the different towns they lived in in the South. And they really feel um, bought in. They feel like this is their museum. Um, and and it, it, it spawned our tagline. We have our tagline is Shalom, make yourself at home. Shalom means welcome or peace and make yourself at home is that Southern hospitality that come on in. Everyone is welcome. This is your place. It's not a stuffy place. Uh, it's for everybody. And so even though we're small and the World War II Museum is big, we have that kind of feeling that this is your museum and we want you to be a part of it. And um, both of you had come from other facilities that were kind of limiting. Uh, you were, um, Julia, you were downtown, uh, that we could only get so much bigger over there. And then, Kenneth, uh, your, the, the early uh, uh, idea for the, for the museum was up in the Mississippi Delta, where you, uh, and that, what I found interesting about that is that was, I guess, Camp Jacob. And when I talked to um, Jewish people here in the city, they all remember going to Camp Jacob. That was like everybody's Jewish people's the summer camp for kids. Uh, and why did you move to New Orleans? So, right, exactly. The museum started out in Utica, Mississippi, just uh, um, not actually in the Delta, but uh, in Mississippi, not too far from Jackson. It was started in the late 80s in an effort to preserve the small town Jewish community history, which was disappearing. These, uh, these small towns, the, the kids were going off to college, getting degrees, not coming back, moving to New Orleans, moving to Memphis and, and Houston and Atlanta. And so the small towns were disappearing. The camp became a repository for 
the articles, the uh, you know the Torahs and the the various things from the synagogues. Uh, and they started a museum. It was a wonderful place for the campers in the summer to learn about their Jewish heritage in the South. Uh, it was one of only two air-conditioned buildings there, so people were thrilled to go in in the Mississippi summer. Uh, but the public couldn't really access it. Yeah. So they closed the museum and, and looked for a new place to house it, a place where it could be accessible to everybody. And New Orleans was chosen. New Orleans has a wonderful, rich Jewish history. It has a wonderful tourist economy. It has Tulane University, which, is, uh, which has the nation's third highest Jewish student percentage population. 36 or 37% of Tulane is Jewish students. And so we use um, interns from the Jewish studies department there. Um, and it's, we've just found that it's been a, such a welcoming community for us that we're so happy we're here. As time goes on, we're learning more about the economic ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there are layers of loss and disruption that continue to just come to light long after the initial impact. The ultimate fate of the Louisiana Children's Museum and the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience is yet to be determined. We know that both of these organizations have lost significant revenue and have lost employees, but what is less able to be calculated is the cost to the community of these institutions being closed. We certainly hope that the museum's financial losses can be held at bay, uh, but we equally hope that both of these museums get to open soon for the greater good they bring to the residence and soul of the city of New Orleans. Julia and Kenneth, we wish you the best of luck as you navigate the future of your museums. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Good to Peter. see you, Kenneth. Take care. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Julia Bland, CEO of Louisiana Children's Museum, and Kenneth Hoffman, the executive director of the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. Now, we edited this show to fit into the time slot here at WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversations to find out more about Julia and Kenneth's museums by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Very soon, we're going back to hosting Out to Lunch around the real world lunch table. For right now, Commander's Palace is open for dinner seven nights a week and jazz brunch on the weekends. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business, New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... 
Short & Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas, and by Peony on Magazine Street, exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts, and by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie, the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 